take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning to Philippians chapter 3, a very well-known passage in the Scripture. Philippians chapter 3, I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, A New Beginning. Uh, We're going to focus in on verses 12 to 16, but to get the context, I want us to jump back all the way to verse 1 and read down through verse 16. As you're finding your place in your copy of God's Word, I, I hope that each Sunday morning out on the table that you will pick up the sermon notes page. I think that will help you as we go through the message and it will give you something to take home and it will be fodder for your further study. Hopefully it will whet your appetite to get into that passage a little bit more and study more in depth and it will also help you to follow along in the message. This morning in addition to the sermon notes page I have left you a page out there ways to grow in 2018. I hope you'll stop by the table and pick this up. I've given you five things that uh, I'd like to uh, make known to you. I think ways that will help you grow in your Christian walk. First of all, if you don't have a good study Bible, uh, you need to go and get one. The notes at the bottom of the pages, the introductions to the book, the articles at the beginning and the back of the Bible will be very helpful for you in your Christian growth. And so I encourage you, some of my favorite ones, the ESV Study Bible probably has the most complete set of notes of any study Bible out there today. Uh, I love that uh, Bible. Also, the Reformation Study Bible is excellent. And then there's the NIV Zondervan Study Bible edited by D.A. Carson. Not to be confused with the NIV Study Bible, which is an excellent study Bible too. But the NIV Zondervan Study Bible, again, probably some of the most complete notes of any Uh, study Bible you'll find out there today than the MacArthur study Bible. So get you a good study Bible and then get on a Bible reading plan. I've given you a website here where 16 Bible reading plans are available on Ligonier.org. 16 Bible reading plans. I think among 16 you and I can probably find one that suits us, right? So log on, get one of those Bible reading plans, download it, print it off, and stick that in your Bible and use that to read through the whole counsel of God. Also on Ligonier, that same homepage, there's a learning tab that you can click on. And you're not going to believe all the material that you're going to find there. The conferences, excellent conferences. Dr. Al Mohler President of Southern Seminary, one of our six Southern Baptist seminaries. He's a frequent speaker and lecturer uh, on that. And you'll find that just excellent learning material to help you grow. Probably my favorite uh, website would be biblicaltraining.org. I love that site. Dr. William Mounts has gathered together seminary professors from around the country and said, let's put our all our lectures online and so people can get a Bible education, theological education free of charge. And some of the speakers, some of the professors he's gathered together are some of the most respected in their fields. 
And they have three levels of learning, and you can click on one of those, like the Institutes, for example, and study Old Testament, New Testament, uh, theology, church history, textual criticism, electives of different books of the Bible, uh, just a slew of information to help you grow in your Christian faith and be more grounded. Uh, take a look at that website. And then I, of course, encourage every believer to purchase a good theology. Uh, and I've given you three I've listed here. There are so many that I could give you. But folks, we live in a day and age we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be grounded. Paul says in Romans 12 too that we need to be renewed in our thinking. Where do we learn about God? We learn about God in the Bible. There are so many opinions of what God is like today, but we don't rely on opinion. We rely on revelation. And God has given his revelation, his word, that we might know him, how he has worked in the lives of his people through the ages and when we learn more about God and how he has worked among his people, it's going to help us be grounded and understand how he works in our lives. And it's going to affect your prayer life. Because you're going to pray according to the will of God, if you know God. It's going to affect everything about your life. So I've given you some resources whereby you can grow this year and deepen in your Christian understanding. Church is faced with things today. Kevin mentioned progressive Christianity. I think also the new apostolic reformation. Two movements, progressive Christianity, new apostolic reformation. Two movements that are very dangerous. Dangerous and unbiblical. But how are we going to know that if we don't train ourselves? So anyway... Some great resources there I hope you'll take advantage of. Stand for the reading of God's word, please. Beginning in verse 1, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Judaizers who said you had to add circumcision to faith in Christ. You needed a Christ plus something else, salvation. Paul said look out for them. Be warned. They're, they're a dangerous group. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Father, we thank you for your word. Teach us from it this morning. Lord, I pray that as we close out one year and begin another tomorrow, that we would honestly evaluate our Christian walk, our spiritual gifts, our service, our ministry, our sense of mission to the world. Lord, I pray that we would be a people in which you would be pleased to dwell. And that you would be with us as we go out. That you'd be with us and help us to be salt and light to this age. Now teach us this morning. And again I pray if there's anybody who doesn't know Christ. That they would experience the new beginning of all beginnings. That they would experience the second birth. It's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. Among the Hebrew prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah is considered one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest of all. It's believed that Isaiah was perhaps a member of the royal family. Now we're not told exactly the circumstances surrounding his call to the prophetic ministry, but apparently Isaiah was in the temple worshiping God. And as he was doing so, the focus of the entire nation was on the fact that they had just lost their king. Their earthly king, Uzziah, who had enjoyed a very long and prosperous reign. Now no doubt many in the nation were concerned that with him gone, what would happen to the nation next? Suddenly, out of nowhere, God breaks in and gives Isaiah a vision. Isaiah sees God seated upon a throne, high and lifted up and exalted. Isaiah is probably intended to see that while the earthly king Uzziah is dead, the heavenly king is very much alive. He is eternal and he still reigns supreme. And so there's no cause for alarm. 
In this vision, Isaiah sees God in his holiness. And as he sees God in his holiness, Isaiah is absolutely certain that he is going to die. Because he is a mere man. A sinful man. And he sees his sin and the magnitude of his sin up next to the holiness and the awesomeness of God. And he is certain that his life is going to come to an end. God sends one of the seraphim over to Isaiah with a burning coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. And he gives Isaiah the pronouncement that his sin is taken away. The next thing that Isaiah hears is God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And God says, Go. From that moment on in his life, Isaiah is a new man. He's had a new beginning. He's a new man with a new mission. He's now to be God's prophet to God's people. Now, folks, oftentimes in stories of new beginnings, we hear that phrase, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not the case with Isaiah. God told Isaiah in chapter 6 that through his preaching, the people would not listen. In fact, he says their eyes will be shut, their ears will be closed, and ultimately out of disobedience, they will be taken away into exile. Now, according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah himself becomes a martyr. King Manasseh was hunting Isaiah down to kill him. And Isaiah, according to one writing, hid in a hollowed out tree. And Manasseh gave the order to saw the tree in two. And in sawing the tree in two, he sawed Isaiah in true. Into. This may be what Hebrews 11 is referring to when it says that some of the righteous prophets of old were sawn in two. Isaiah though had a life changing new beginning. It did not end well from, for him from the human perspective but what about from God's perspective? What about from the perspective of eternity? Isaiah is a man who experienced the very glory of God and he was never the same again. Now this morning as we stand here at the close of 2017 and 2018 lies before us, I want to talk to you about new beginnings. Now if this year is like any other year previous to this, I know what's going to happen this week as far as the U.S. mail. You and I are going to be getting some little notes in the mail from exercise gyms that, that we need to sign up and we need to have a new beginning physically, right? If you're like me, you'll sign up for one of those and then just never go. You'll be getting ads for diet companies wanting you to do this diet or that diet. Everybody is promising you your best life now. By way of contrast, the new beginning I want to have and I want all of us to have is one based on a fresh vision of God. 
I'm not talking about happily ever after the way the world thinks of that. I'm talking about a new beginning that God gives that like Isaiah may not end well for you. May not end well for me again the way the world would look at it. But from God's perspective it will end just as he desires. It may end with you and your family being on a dangerous mission field somewhere. It may be a new beginning for you. Maybe that you're enrolled in a seminary somewhere in the, in the country. And then you're going to go out to serve some local church in ministry. For the most, I would assume, it, it may mean that you end up right where you are. But with a renewed passion to live your life as a living sacrifice. And to be a better witness for Christ. A better witness in your marriage. A better witness in your school. And a better witness in your job. Let's give our attention this morning to these five verses. And what we're going to see is that we need to experience a new beginning by humbly admitting where we are spiritually. Owning up to where we are spiritually and where we need to grow and things in our lives that we need to let go of, maybe even some good things that are the enemy of the best, Things we need to let go of and things that we need to embrace. That's what we're going to see in this passage. First of all this morning I want you to see that we need to make an honest assessment of our spiritual life. An honest assessment of one's spiritual life. Look again at verse 12. Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We're going to spend most of our time this morning on this one point. But I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is doing here. If anything, we'd have to say he is making an honest assessment of his spiritual life. And when I read these words, I think also of the parable that Jesus told about two men. There was a Pharisee and there was a publican, both who went up to the temple to pray one day. And the Bible says that the Pharisee prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I do this, I do that. God, you ought to be happy that you have me on your team. But the publican made a very honest assessment of his spiritual life. And the Bible says he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven toward God. But instead he looked down and he beat on his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the Bible says he's the one that went home justified that day. Paul, likewise, is making an honest assessment of where he is. Naturally, as we look at verse 12, we see this assessment on Paul's part of what his shortcomings are. Paul has just stated in lofty terms what he wants. If you go back earlier in the passage, he wants to know Christ perfectly... And he wants to know Christ more fully. Everything in his life that gets in the way of that or conjures up any kind of pride based on his background or his performance, he wants to let go of, of all of that. 
Now how different this is compared to those at Philippi. That Paul warned the church about who boasted in the flesh. And they bragged about how far along they were in their Christian faith. Paul, on the other hand, did not boast in the flesh. He boasted in God. He knew that from the time of his Damascus Road experience, it was God who had intervened in his life. It was God who had regenerated the apostle. Paul was saved. He was justified. He was born again. And that was God's work in Paul. Paul knows, therefore, that it is absolutely futile to boast in the flesh. He now understands that. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he does in us. And so if there is going to be any boasting, let us boast in Christ. Let us boast in the cross of Christ. Even if it takes suffering to achieve knowing Christ, Paul wants to go through that suffering. I don't know many people like that. Imagine that. Even if it takes trials and hardship and suffering, Paul is saying, I desire that if that's what it's going to take to conform me to the image of Christ, then I even want to go through trials. Now somebody would think of a man like that. They would look at the life of the Apostle Paul and, and somebody who even wants trials and hardship and they'd say, here's a man who has arrived. If anybody's reached the goal, he has. Paul would not agree with that assessment. Paul would not agree with that assessment that he had arrived. That he had reached the goal. He would not agree with anybody that would come along patting him on the back. And congratulating him. Paul wants to stretch forward and apprehend that for which he's been apprehended. The language here is so picturesque. Paul wants to lay hold of. He wants to grasp. He wants to embrace that for which he has been embraced. I think of what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God has saved us and called us according to his own purpose and grace. Paul is saying here, I want to embrace that. I want to lay hold of that. And so you read verse 12 and it almost appears that there is a little bit of a holy dissatisfaction to his life. Everything God had in mind for Paul when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, Paul says, I want to achieve. The last thing I want to do, he says, is just coast through my Christian life. The fact that God came to him in grace and saved him is motivation enough. He says as much at the end of verse 12. He, he says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In making an assessment of his life, he's honest about his shortcomings. He's saying, I've not become perfect. 
Perfect is the Greek word to telomai. I think of the Greek word to telestai that Jesus said on the cross to telestai. It is finished. Paul uses a related word to telomai, which means to reach the end or to bring to a completion or a fulfillment. Paul was saying, I know that I've not yet become all that God wants me to be. I've not yet completed. I've not yet fulfilled what God saved me for. Whatever others may claim for themselves, Paul knows he's not hit the mark yet. Now remember again at the beginning of the chapter, Paul is is addressing those who take pride in the flesh. And that's why he launched into his resume stating if they wanted to play that game of comparing spiritual resumes, he could play that game too and he could win. But he had learned that whatever was gained to him, he now counts as loss. Human achievements do not contribute one bit to our salvation or our standing before God. That was a lesson that Paul learned on the road to Damascus when he was converted. And now he points out that he has not obtained perfection or or complete maturity yet. What he's admitting here is so, so long as his human life endures, there's further progress to be made. The analogy here is of a race. Paul loved analogies. He loved figures to communicate spiritual truth. He used a number of them. The soldier. How a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. But he lives to please his commanding officer. And we're soldiers of the cross. And we can't get involved in everything people in the world get involved in. Then he uses the image of an architect or a builder. And he points out that the foundation is Christ. And we're living stones built upon that. Then he gives the image of a farmer. A farmer tills the soil, plants the seed. And then has to stand back and patiently wait. And that's how we've got to do it as Christians. And then he uses the image of an athlete. And again, that's what he's doing here. An athlete and a race. That's running hard and in all of his training he's disciplined himself. We've got to discipline ourselves towards godliness. Paul's point is a race is not over until it's over. Not until you cross the finish line or the prize is given out. Until then Paul is acknowledging that he lives with something of a holy dissatisfaction. He's like an athlete who is constantly evaluating, constantly assessing how he can do a little bit better. Tell me, is there a healthy dissatisfaction in your Christian walk? There needs to be. You know, in the Christian life, there's both satisfaction and dissatisfaction. We are perfectly satisfied in Christ because we have in Him everything that we need. But then there's a bit of dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with who we are. I'm not talking about an unhealthy evaluation of yourself where you feel like you never quite measure up. That is not biblical. I'm talking about a healthy dissatisfaction that drives you to be more like Christ. The, The kind of attitude that says as long as there is breath in me, I need to grow. 
I've not achieved the goal yet of complete maturity. If there's not that kind of attitude in your Christian journey, I'm not sure growth is even going to be a priority to you because you're not going to see your need. I don't know about you, but if you're like me, the more you grow, the more you realize you need to grow. Amen? I'm reminded of the beatitude where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. When we're satisfied, there's a fullness, there's a contentment like sitting back and relaxing after a good meal. But Jesus spoke of hungering and thirsting. That's the attitude that Paul is expressing right here. Yes, Paul knew that his salvation was all of grace. Human works and the law did not factor in anywhere. It's all of God's grace. Christ alone and grace alone. And he hammered against those who tried to add anything to Christ alone and so again I'm not talking about a dissatisfaction of wanting to do a little bit more if I do a little bit more maybe God will accept me no 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 again that's not biblical at all a salvation rooted in Christ though does something to the human heart To be a recipient of God's grace humbles one to the point that you want to live the Christian life out of gratitude. Gratitude that God would save a sinner like me. Gratitude. I deserve hell, eternal damnation. But God in His grace has saved me. And, and there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Folks, if we truly understand what God has done for us in Christ, there ought to be a, a gratitude that moves us. No thought of trying to pay God back. But an attitude of utter gratitude that God reached down and saved you. I think of a magnet, two sides of a magnet. One side, you, you put them together, and one side snaps to the other side. In salvation, God has done that. God has drawn us to himself and saved us. God initiates and accomplishes our salvation in Christ. But after salvation, there's that same sense in which we constantly want to be drawn to God. It's because the Spirit of God dwells in us. The Spirit of the living God. If the Spirit of the living God dwells in you, then the Spirit of the living God, what's He going to do? He's going to draw you to God and the things of God. He's going to do that. You're going to want to know God. You're going to want to spend time with Him. You're going to to want to grow in your Christian walk because the Spirit of God is in you. And, And like a magnet, He's drawing you to the other side of the magnet. He's drawing you to God. 
The whole New Testament talks about this, this life change, this whole attitude and life change. I think of John and, and, and 1 John, for example, writing about do you love God's truth about his son? Do you love his word and his commandments? Do you, do you walk like Jesus? Do you, do you love the brethren? Does your life bear fruit? I think Paul would warn us that if that is not our understanding of salvation, maybe we don't have the, the right understanding. Maybe we don't have the real thing. Maybe a true change hasn't even occurred. The genuine believer has this thirst, this ambition to know Christ and to become whatever it is that Christ has in mind for him or her. If that's not the case, we're no better off than the Laodiceans that said, hey, we're rich, we don't need anything. And Christ said, you don't, you don't understand, you're poor and wretched and blind and naked. Folks, after being saved by grace, there needs to be this assessment that says, now I realize I've not yet arrived. I haven't apprehended everything for which Christ apprehended me. Again, the motivation is gratitude. This is no works theology. It is a theology that says gratitude is the appropriate response to grace. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Until then, Paul says, I've got a lot of growing to do. Again, folks, think of that. The Apostle Paul, the man that God used to write most of the New Testament... The churches we read about in the New Testament, in the epistles, he's the one that went on those missionary journeys and planted those churches. The greatest theologian the church has ever known, missionary, theologian, apostle. And Paul says, I've not arrived yet. I'm not there. I've not hit the mark. Boy, now that's an honest assessment, isn't it? What assessment would you make of your spiritual life as we're on the brink of a new year? Where are you spiritually? Be honest, God knows. Where are you spiritually? Have you been born again? Hey, I was, I was in the church six years, baptized in the church six years before I was born again. God worked on me for a year and a half, breaking me, drawing me to himself. Changed my life, changed my desires. Have you been born again? I've been hitting on that a lot lately because of the danger, the danger we see in the scripture of the reality of religious people who might be lost. Nick, I think of Nicodemus, a religious leader in the land, and yet he was lost. And Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? 
changed from the inside out. A new creation in Christ where old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You were dead to the things of God. Now you're alive to the things of God. Has that happened? I hope it has. I trust it has for the majority of you. Christians, though, we still need to make an honest, we need to continually from time to time make honest assessments like Paul did. Okay, I'm saved, I'm born again. God laid hold of me. God saved me not only from something, God saved me for something. I want to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Christ saved you for something. He saved you for a ministry to his body and a mission to the world. A ministry to the church body, a mission to the world. Are you busy about that? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? An honest assessment of where you are. I want to invite you today and tomorrow to to do that. An honest assessment of your spiritual life. What's going on with you spiritually? Secondly, I want you to see here a proper perspective on the past. Paul says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We need to have a bit of holy amnesia. There are things that we need to forget. You know, there there were things Paul had to forget. Paul had to forget everything that was on his spiritual resume. It was a pretty impressive list. He had to lay that aside. He also had to forget about his sin. Remember what he said in 1 Timothy 1? He was the chief of sinners. He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. And then he he was going to Damascus to drag Christians back to put some in prison and others to death. Paul says, I was a murderer. I was a blasphemer. I was the chief of sinners. And yet God had mercy on me. Paul had to forget all of that. Some of you perhaps need to let some things go. Let go of hurts. Maybe somebody hurt you a long time ago and you're still dwelling on that and feeding on that. You need to forgive them even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Folks, you need to realize that that we too have probably hurt people in the past. And we have certainly not treated God as God deserves. So we ourselves are not innocent when it comes to the hurt department. Some people act like all the world has hurt them and yet they've never hurt anybody themselves. Yes, you have. each of us have hurt people and we've, we've offended God. So some of those hurts people have done against you, you need to forgive them. You need to get past that. If you find yourself constantly bitter towards somebody, maybe a family member, maybe a parent, maybe a boss, maybe an ex-spouse, 
Maybe somebody at church, you need to let it go. What you're doing, dwelling on that and feeding on that is sin. And you need to recognize it's sin what you're doing. And you need to let it go. Speaking of sin, you need to let sin go. Is there ongoing sin in your life? Maybe there's a bondage over certain types of sin in your life that you need to confess to God and turn to Him for forgiveness and help to overcome it. What sin do you need to put behind you? Secret sin? What sin do you need to deal with? Let go of guilt over forgiven sin. Guilt over forgiven sin. Some people know that God has forgiven them, but they can't forgive themselves. Are you being serious? You, believe, you know God forgave you, but you can't forgive yourself. If God forgave you, you can forgive yourself. You know, Satan's an accuser, isn't he? He's an accuser. He could have said, Paul, I will... God, Paul, God will never forgive you. When you think of what you've done, Paul... You think God's going to forgive you and use you? You can forget it. Satan's an accuser. But folks, God does forgive when we truly take him at his word. We can trust him. God doesn't lie. Let go of failures. You can't do anything about those now. Others perhaps need to let go of some feelings of accomplishment that you're proud of. And you're still dwelling in that world. So proud of past accomplishments. Folks, we need to choose not to be governed by the past. Whether good things or bad things, too many people are controlled by the past. And Paul is saying here, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I think of Simon Peter. Simon Peter denied Christ three times. And yet remember what Jesus said after he was raised from the dead? He said, go tell my disciples and Peter. He wanted Peter to know he was forgiven. John 21, he said, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep three times. Simon Peter denied him three times. Three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Satan will cause us to to, to mull over hurts of the past, what people have done to us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about everything the Jews did to him. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. If anybody could have been bitter towards his own people, it, it was Paul. And yet look at what Paul says of them in Romans 9. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh he wasn't bitter he wept for them another good example Joseph Joseph after he rose to the position he was in his brothers came to him he could have had them killed but he said to his brothers what you meant for evil God had a plan in all of it and God used it for good he wanted his brothers to know he had let go of the past 
Others get mad at God because God doesn't do something in their lives they expect him to do. Paul had a thorn in the flesh three times. God, remove it, remove it, remove it, please. God said, no, I'm not going to. You know, some Christians would have the attitude, if that's what God's, God's going to do with me, if that's how God's going to treat me, I'm not going to serve him. Paul didn't have that attitude. Folks, quit opening up wounds of the past. Physical analogy. Let's say you have surgery. You have a scar. I don't know of anybody in their right mind that you, you would need mental help if you did what I'm about to say. But if, if that place was healing up and just went about to heal up, you go back and you rip it back open again. And then it heals up again and you rip it open again. heals up again you rip it open again. Nobody would do that. And yet, you know something? Emotionally and spiritually, that's exactly what some people do with hurts of the past. They keep feeding on them and dwelling on them and ripping them open and ripping them open and ripping them open. You need to let it go. Next we see an appropriate passion for the present. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says twice, I press on. And then added to that, he says, I press forward, I press, I strain, as the ESV puts it. It carries the idea of intense endeavor. The Greek used it to describe a hunter eagerly pursuing his prey. Of course, of course, Paul has the image of the race, the runner pushing forward with all of his might. Paul says, I'm pressing forward. Towards what? The upward call of God. I'm bringing all of my energies to bear on pressing forward. I'm letting things go behind that need to stay in the past. And now I'm pressing forward to what Christ has for me. Are you doing that? Wouldn't it be awesome if Christians lived with the same determination in the Christian walk that they did in other areas of their life? Wouldn't that be great? I've talked about hobbies before, and don't get me wrong, nothing wrong with hobbies. It can be a great outlet. But take a man, maybe he's consumed with golf, or maybe a motorcycle, or maybe a classic car. Take a woman, maybe tennis, or maybe her career, whatever it is. What if you took that same man or woman, all the passion that they bring to these other areas of their life, and they applied that same passion to their Christian walk? What might God do in and through them? It'd be awesome. I've quoted to you before, awesome quote, Brian Harbour. He writes, the greatest indictment of the Christians in our day is not that we are merely falling short of the mark but that we have quit even, even striving to reach the mark we're not even striving anymore we don't even care sadly that's the case of far too many what are some of your goals 
spiritual goals. How about in relationship to prayer, to Bible study, to Bible memorization? How about in terms of discovering your spiritual gift? Maybe it has to do with your giving. Maybe it has to do with your witnessing to the law. What are, what are some of the spiritual goals you have for your life for this next year? Are you going to press on towards those? Reach forward? You know what, folks? If we'll do what Paul said, an honest assessment, letting go of things in the past need to let go of straining forward. You know what I think? We, we can experience a new beginning. John Piper, and I close with this, John Piper years ago wrote a book entitled Don't Waste Your Life. Some of you read that book, no doubt. Speaking to a crowd of young people on one occasion about that book and about that subject, here's what Piper said. He said, but I know that not everyone in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you, you don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have all of that, you would be satisfied even without God. He went on to say, that is a tragedy in the making. Don't be a tragedy in the making. Instead, lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of you.